0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Patricia McCarthy, the author of Life in the Country House in Georgian, Ireland. Patricia, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
1: Well, um, I was kind of late coming to all of this, Mark, to be honest. Um, some years ago, when my children were just that little bit older and were at school, um, I decided I'd do a two-year diploma course in the history of European painting, uh, which was something in which I was greatly interested. Um, during, In the course of, of doing that, uh, we had study trips to Rome and to Florence, which were just absolutely wonderful, seeing all the pictures that we had studied and even seeing some architecture. Then I decided to kind of take it further and do a Bachelor of Arts degree in um, Trinity College, Dublin, in the Department of Art and Architectural History. Now, this was interesting because architectural history was part of the curriculum, so you had to do it. In the course of the four years then that I was there, I actually discovered that it was architecture that I... I really wanted to uh, to, to major in, um, probably because of the really brilliant teacher that I had there. But then again, you know, looking around Dublin and going through this course with him, um, talking about jo- Dublin as a Georgian city with loads of 18th century public buildings and squares and terraces of georgian houses and um, as well as a great number of country houses built in the 18th century what all of that to me was really really compelling so after getting uh, that primary degree and uh, in the meantime i had written a book on the building of the king's inns in dublin and um, the king's inns being ireland's oldest legal institution and and also oldest school of law and um, I decided that I really enjoyed research so much that i just go on and do a PhD, a doctorate. And I had no particular plan uh, with regard to do I want to teach in a university? Do I want to teach at all? There was nothing like that. It was just I felt I'm just going to see how far I can go with all of this. So my supervisor for the PhD was the the teacher that I, I mentioned earlier. And it was he who suggested investigating how rooms got their names and what people did in different rooms in houses in the 18th century. So I I, I was sort of between two minds about that. I, I wasn't quite sure whether I re- it really appealed to me. But I thought well look I'll have a go, I'll do a bit of research, see what I come up with. And uh, so I embarked on the PhD on that very subject, and I got a huge amount of help from lots and lots of people, terrific encouragement, particularly from the Knight of Glynn, who himself was the owner of a beautiful castle in, uh, in Limerick, and who kept on saying to me, you know, get the thesis done, Patricia, and then get down and do the book. And I really, when I was doing the thesis, I wasn't thinking in terms of a book at all. But that's what it was, and that's what the book Is about it's a version of the PhD happily, I must say, rapidly, and because (laughs) the very idea of reading a PhD is just horrific. And because (laughs) with a PhD, as you know, you throw in it's like show off time and you throw in everything that you know about it. So I just went through the whole PhD, put it into language, which was more accessible and expressions that were more accessible to an average reader. Um, bearing in mind that this was, I was writing architectural history as well and so that um, people from academic backgrounds would be would be reading it. Um, but anyway, that's, that, so that's what the book is. It's a result of that. And when I finished it, I sort of said to my supervisor, okay, so what are we going to do now? So he said, right, we're going to send it to Yale but you must be joking. uh, So he said, no, not at all. He said, we'll we'll send it to Yale. He said, I think it should be quite good uh, for them. So we sent it to Yale, and then I was ages and ages waiting, and eventually they came back to me and said, yes, we'd like to go ahead, and we'd like to publish your book. So that's how it all came about. all just chance and just wonderful stuff.
0: One of the things I should uh, mention that, uh, really distinguishes this book from the uh, typical dissertation, in addition to the fact you know that it's very clearly written, is also the fact that it's uh gorgeously illustrated. Uh, you have quite a phenomenal selection of of pictures and uh, sketches and uh, plans, which really do a good job of bringing quite a lot of the details that you describe to light.
1: I think so, and and I really do thank Yale very much for that because as you can imagine, uh, you know, when you're using uh, material like uh, architectural plans which are over 200 years old, the print on them, and I needed annotated plans, so I needed to see where is the saloon, where is the kitchen, where is the dining room. Um, and on some of them it was actually quite hard to see and I was worried when I sent them to Yale because the very fact is the book is all about the spaces so when you're using a lot of architectural imagery you need people to be able to see what I'm talking about at the same time but they really brought up those pictures extremely well so that with most of them even with a couple of them you might have to get um, a magnifying glass but for the most part, you can actually read um, the, the architectural drawings. So I'm very grateful for that. Also, they did a super job in the design of the book. I was so pleased with that. and It's what a lot of people have mentioned about it. Um, and also the color reproductions. The, yeah, the pictures are really good. But then, you know, we really do have some really nice country houses here in Ireland, which have wonderful interiors.
0: You were talking about how much of the book is about spaces. And you... Uh, And we'll be discussing that in greater detail in a little bit. But I was wondering if you could start us off by talking about the country houses themselves and what they were like prior to the 18th century. I mean, what makes the what makes the country house in the 18th century so distinctly different from what came before?
1: Well, the funny thing about it is the country houses in Ireland are quite different um, uh, from. uh, Sorry, I should start that again. The country houses in Ireland. Um, really started with Palladian style houses. In England there was a whole era before that because of course they had a lot of, uh, they had a, a quieter time than we had in Ireland. We had a lot of wars in the 17th century. Um, but in England, they had a baroque style of architecture, which was um, a, a sort of an encrusted type of building with fancy chimneys and, uh, and roof lines. Wonderful, wonderful buildings like Blenheim Pal- Palace, for example. But we didn't have that. I mean, up to the beginning, up to about 18, 19, sorry, 1719, we had castles in Ireland. Uh, so we didn't have an architecture other than castles and um, so those castles were uh, divided really between what we call tower houses which would be high castles and semi fortified houses which would be um like three or four story houses quite wide um but the the um Semi-fortified, they were classical in style with regular features, but they had defensive galleries and they had loopholes on them for defence, and they were surrounded by a fortified outer wall, like Portumna Castle in County Galway. That's an example. Um, and, and that house fared very badly in the 17th century wars in Ireland. The other ones, the castles, which became, or which were tower houses, were when people um, built a house attached to the tower house. It would probably be lower than the tower house, but it could be around about the same size. So it meant that they were, it was like hedging your bets. If there was going to be an attack, you could leave your more modern house, which is right beside, right attached to your castle, and then hop into the castle until the danger was passed.
0: So in the 18th century, the country house doesn't so much evolve the way it does in England as much as it does undergo almost an evolutionary leap.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, Palladianism was really the first style of architecture that we had, um, you know, from the beginning of the 18th century, from about 1897, sorry, I'm getting, I keep on saying 18 for the 18th century, but it's 17, Um, about 1719, when Castletown House was started and uh, Palladian. I don't know whether you want me just to say a little bit about Palladianism, Mark?
0: Please do. What exactly is Palladianism and and from where did it come?
1: Sure, yeah. Well, Palladianism is a style of
0: architecture um,
1: which came from the the 16th century Italian architect architect called Andrea Palladio. Um, And what his architecture Uh, was really governed by the principles of classical antiquity Um, and that would be as known from surviving buildings and from the writings of the first century BC theorist, uh, the Truthius. So he was kind of the first architect. He looked around, he saw the sort of buildings and he talked about the buildings and he talked about um, symmetry and proportion. And so this was taken up in the 16th century by Andrea Palladio, who built a lot of houses near Venice, um, villas, villas for people who are living in Venice and wanted to relax and get out of Venice during the summer when the canals and the the water can be quite um, smelly. And they wanted to go and relax in the the countryside. So he built a style of houses at that stage, um, architecture which was noted really for its uh, its clarity, its order, symmetry, proportion, all of those but much plainer than we would uh, think in t- when you think in terms of the Baroque, an awful lot plainer than that and very regular. So that dominated house building in Ireland uh, from the beginning of the 18th century and Palladianism was introduced to England, first of all, by Lord Burlington, who then built his own house called Chiswick House uh, in London, which is very much uh, in the style of a Palladian house. Um, Sir Edward Lovett Pierce then, who was an Irish architect, um, he did his grand tour. He went to Italy uh, and to France and studied Palladio's works. And then he came back to Ireland and brought it with them. So Irish Palladianism really was a toned-down version of English practice. For example, we didn't have in in Irish Palladianism one one of the uh, one of the uh, things that they have in 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 in, um, in Palladianism in certainly in the Veneto um, and also in England were uh, porticos. Um, you have them also in the United States, in the White House and all of that. So uh, porticos were found to be too expensive for Irish people. So we don't have quite the same as the wonderful huge houses, huge Palladian houses that they have in England. We have a toned down version, a slightly smaller version of, these, uh, of, of this English practice. Uh, but we do have details such as tripartite doorways with a pediment over them, Venetian windows and semicircular diocletian windows. But um, Edward Lovett Pearce and his successor, who was called Richard Castle, really favoured Palladio's plan of a central block, so the house was a central block, joined then by straight or curved arcades or colonnades, uh, which sort of came um, around from, from the main block of the house, curved around, and ended or terminated in pavilions, such as those at Mount Vernon in uh, in Virginia, so the style really suited and was really taken to heart by the Irish nobility and gentry, and it lasted even into the beginning of the 19th century, but it wasn't confined to big houses. When I say big houses, well, it's all relative when you think in terms of (laughs) British houses, but it wasn't confined to big Irish houses. Um, screen walls could be substituted in smaller houses for the arcades because arcades or colonnades would be very expensive to to build. Um, houses like Castletown here in County Kildare and Rusborough in County Wicklow would both have um, these. But you know, if if um, somebody else was building, hadn't the the money to do so, they just have screen walls coming from the main block of the house down to the um, uh, to the um, pavilions. and and that looked absolutely fine. You could decorate your wall. But an important difference in Irish practice was something that is quite interesting. The pavilions were used, or one of the pavilions was used as stables Now, that was the whole idea where Palladio was concerned. In the Veneto and in in the villas that he designed, one of the uh, pavilions was always used as stables. Now, when that style translated itself to England, they didn't use them as stables, or certainly not often. They used them for extra accommodation. So you might have a library in an English Mm -hmm. pavilion, or you might have a billiard room, or something like that. But in Ireland, they were never the one pavilion was always used as a stable building, and the other pavilion would be used for the, uh, for the kitchen and services.
0: So they were not trying to simply uh, unimaginatively import the design. They were adapting it to the needs of, uh,
1: of the uh, Of the Irish clientele. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, you have to bear in mind, too, the love that Irish people had for their horses. The very fact that your horses are accommodated almost in the house was sheer bliss for the Irish landowner because they enjoyed horses, they uh, uh, raced their horses, um, they spent a lot of time on their horses, on their equipage and everything like that. But horses were hugely important. The other thing about it was that it was awfully convenient Um, for people to have their stable in the pavilion um, attached to the house, because the master of the house, when you think of it, the the only way of mode of transport really was horse, Um, when he, he could just simply walk out of his study, which was generally on the ground floor of the house, And he could either just simply go straight into the arcade or colonnade or whatever, or just simply walk out and then into a stable which was right beside him. So the the horses in in, in those stables would be the horses in general use. So they would be his horse for riding out, and they would be family horses for riding out. They would also be the coach horses. But any other horses, like race horses, might have a separate stable building to themselves. Um, or they might be in a stable, you know, at a distance from the house. Um, and then the horses used for farm work and everything like that were in another area. They would be in the farm yard, in one of the buildings in the farm yard.
0: So the horses that were kept closed were the horses that were uh, for personal use and the use of the household. Absolutely. And the and the work horses and the show horses, so to speak, for the grounds for uh, for racing those were much further away
1: there were and they weren't necessarily um they weren't necessarily on the estate owned by uh, you know the owner's estate he may have them in as stables in somebody else's um estate i, I don't mean, another, sorry, i don't mean another landowner's estate but somebody who actually looks after horses all the time uh,
0: another adaptation that you mentioned in the book that i thought was fascinating was uh how the uh, Italian villas that Palladio uh, designed or were designed along, you know, in uh, imitation of Palladio's ideas had uh, shading for the windows and how in Ireland, the very different uh, environmental conditions uh, really made that they, they really had to uh, go a different route.
1: Yeah, these were, these were like the, the porticos and shelters.
0: And how the how the porticos didn't quite work as well for the uh, for the Irish design?
1: Well, they really didn't. But the other, what was more important really was the fact that they were expensive to have, um, so it me it needed um, an awful lot more work. Um, they weren't favoured, and it's hard to work out quite why. But my theory really was the fact that. Um, uh, I, I mean, the, the advantages for them in the Veneto was that um, it would keep the sun out. It would give a certain amount of shade to the rooms and the people could sit in the, in the, in the portico and, um, and enjoy that without getting burned from the sun. Um,
0: it reflected the fact that it was that these were built in an adriatic climate. Absolutely. And totally different temperatures are, Exactly,
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. And then you can have water dripping down from the portico onto the steps of the house. Um, And and that created slippery steps for any of your guests who are arriving, say, for a party or something or for anything if if people were coming in actually the front door. Um, So it it wasn't something that particularly attracted uh, Irish clients. You will find some of, some houses certainly do have them, but for the most part, and the major houses like Castletown and like Rosborough, they don't have them at all. Yet, they have long flights of stairs, or steps, rather, up to the hall door. So you really were going to get fairly drowned as you arrived for a party.
0: You uh, have referred a few times now to Castletown, and in your book, you, uh, you indicate that it really was a seminal uh, construction. And I was wondering if you could explain a bit about how that house in particular uh, came to exert uh, influence over designs of country houses in Ireland in the 18th century.
1: Well, because it was built by a man called um, William Connolly, and he was the speaker of the Irish House of um, Commons. And uh, so he was a very powerful man. He was also a man who owned a huge amount of land throughout Ireland, not only in County Kildare where Castletown is located, um, but all over the place. And so he decided um, in the early um, 1720s that he wanted to build a house. And it was said he wanted to build a house using Irish workers and Irish materials. And even the interior, he, his idea was that he wanted all of the interiors to be like Irish-made. So because he was a very important person in Ireland, people were writing letters about, did you hear about Speaker Connolly's house, Um, how big it's going to be, and um, it's going to be uh, Irish materials, and it's going to be a model for houses in Ireland. And of course, that's what happened. The house itself um was apparently and we're not terribly sure about this was designed by a man called um uh, called Alessandro Galilei and um but there are there's n- nothing to prove that but it is generally accepted that he designed it but Edward Lovett Pierce this um young architect who who died certainly before his time but he was the one who was just back from Italy from all his travels and he was the one who designed the um, the colonnades and the pavilions. And also, it is said, the wonderful, wonderful hall that is in Castletown. So Castletown was a very big house. It took a long time to build. And uh, we don't know, you know, there aren't any records, building records or anything like that, which is such a shame. But it took, took a long time to build, it, but everybody was waiting to see what was What was going to be the end result and finally of course it was built and it was from there and because um connolly was doing this it made people more architecturally aware and so a lot of them were waiting and ready to build as soon as his house was um was complete and and they wanted to see and then copy these new ideas that he had so it was the palladian plan and that was the first of the Palladian houses in Ireland, it is also the biggest of the Palladian houses. but it was it was very, very plain. it, it, it took a long time to be finished. It wasn't really until Lady Louisa Connolly and her husband, Tom Connolly, who was the um, I think he was a grand nephew of Speaker Connolly, he eventually inherited the house and moved in uh, with his his wife, Lady Anne Con- Lady Louisa Connolly, who was the uh, daughter to the Duke of Richmond in England. But again, he was a very, very wealthy man and so she came from a very wealthy family. So between the two of them, they really finished off Castleton House in great splendor. So it was a really, really, really beautiful house. But that was the start. That was the start of uh, Palladianism in Ireland.
0: We've been talking a little bit about uh, parts of the house and uh, what I'd like to do now is to uh, talk in more detail about the designs and layout. And this is something that is, forms the structure of much of your book, is you take us through the various portions of it in some detail. You've described, for example, how one of the concerns they had in Ireland was uh, entering the house and how you had to deal with the fact that because of the water, that oftentimes the steps are slippery. I was wondering if you could speak a bit more about the approaches. I mean, what was it, you know, how, how did they lay out not just the house but the uh the grounds leading up to the house the the way that people uh you know yeah. saw the house for the first time yeah
1: uh, yeah well you know i remember when i started studying the country house in the first place i remember somebody saying to me you'll always know the beginnings of a country house from the road not the driveway, from the road outside because you'll know it by the sort of clusters of vegetation and lots of lovely trees and bushes and everything like that. And of course the high stone walls which were built around them. Um, So the whole thing was almost like a theatrical experience because Um, First of all, as I say, you'd you'd come to the the wall, the high wall around it, probably around about 9 or 10 feet high, uh, right around. Then you'd come to the entrance gateway, which could be in the form of a triumphal arch. Um, It it would always have um, uh, a lodge, uh, a gate lodge, for people to open the gate and, and then shut it after you. Um, And they, the the houses that were, the little houses that were lodges uh, were lived in by people who looked after the gate. um, And they were, the extraordinary thing was that, you know, sometimes later on, and I know I'm jumping on a little bit here, but sometimes later on, people built uh, castle style houses, but they never, ever at any stage minded whether the um, lodge at the gate was also a castle-style house or a little baby castle sitting at the gate, or in the case of the Palladian houses, they didn't attempt to create anything that was particularly Palladian at the gate. Like the lodge was just a building and it's whatever they decided to put there. They weren't worried about does it match the architecture of the house. However, there were all sorts of um, um, uh, different types of of lodges, even to the extent of putting a lodge sometimes across the road from the entrance to the house. And this was a kind of show-off thing, to show, well, you know, we own this field too. It's not just uh, what is surrounded by by the, the great big stone walls. So that was showing off. And I suppose... You could really say, Mark, that these houses were uh, to show off, to show off how up to date you were in architecture, to show off how your gardens had been improved, and what you had done with the with the with the gardens. And so the drive in your carriage from gateway to house was sometimes quite circuitous, in that you might have this sort of serpentine route from the gate to the um, to the house but en route you would see on your left there might be a lake a beautiful lake on your right then behind some shrubbery or trees you would get a little peek of a temple um, they would have perhaps a bridge a quaint little cottage uh, a mock ruin All of that. So, all the time you're getting this experience of different things until you get to the house. And you are surprised then by the house because you suddenly come upon it. That is quite different to what happened um, in the earlier part of the century when houses had straight avenues. So, you'd come out the hall door of the house and you could see way, way, way down in front of you. You could see the gateway in. It was decided in the 18th century that it was much more attractive to have this um, driveway in where various events were observed as you drove in and suddenly here's the house and wow isn't it fantastic and it's so big and it's so beautiful and that was it so it was all designed to impress the another thing about that was many of the houses were freestanding houses, um, and I'm talking about now, not about necessarily um, Palladian houses. I'm talking about houses which, of course, were also being built at the same time. Not Palladian, but very regular. It had Palladian features in that it was, it was all very, very regular, very um, proportion, symmetry, order, clarity and all the rest of it, but they could be square blocks sitting on the top of, you know, a slight incline. And with these houses, like Lisadell, like Bellamont, no sign of a servant, no sign of servants' quarters, no sign of a wing for servants or anything like that. The house house sat like a piece of sculpture on the top of this um, little hill and uh, no sign of anything. But then they had underground tunnels. And so that was a whole other way of keeping eyesores like servants <laughs> out of the way, <laughs> and all of the work that was going on in the uh, in the estate was all done. Um, at a distance from the house, behind yet more clusters of trees, where the, the uh, farmyard and all of the workings of the country house were contained. But these houses were just simply standing on their own. Very, very beautiful, but it was another style. However, just to go back to um, the Palladian house. Um, so you arrive at the door and um, then you, you get out of your carriage. Uh, one thing that, that sort of struck me was, what happens if it really is teeming rain or snow and you're looking out and you're saying, oh my God, my guests are going to arrive and they have to walk up there, their hairstyles will be ruined, their clothes will be dragging in the, in the wet and everything like that. So I actually believe that there was certainly a back door that in a case like that, a person now it would be the, the last resort because you really don't want your guests. When I mean, you've sort of set yourself up for some sort of a party or anything like that, you don't want them coming in the back way. But in a case of necessity, very possibly they did go in the back way. But um, you know, the having a porch or having a portico, from that point of view you know, there were advantages to that too because at least you could kind of settle yourself at the top of the steps and brush off the rain or the snow or whatever it was and gather yourself together before being admitted into the house. But we didn't have that. So, obviously, use of umbrellas and umbrellas were around at that time. um, So they they just simply um, had to cope with it and carry on. And I suppose everybody else was doing it so everybody else was in the same boat.
0: You mentioned the introduction of entry halls or the role of entry halls as helping to, uh, go some way towards addressing that problem as well.
1: Yes. Um, that's right. You, you could, I mean, you could, there were, um, small, um, what would you say? Like, uh, almost like anterooms, but they wouldn't quite be anterooms. You'd come in and, um, uh, you could, you could certainly sort yourself out there um, and you would have the, the aid of servants and all the rest of it. But then eventually, I mean, you you did have to just simply go into the hall and um, hold your head up and pretend <laughs> your dress is just lovely, dripping in the wet and mud <laughs> and everything else.
0: Well, I'd like to think in that since, uh you'd probably be in the same boat as the rest of the guests who were there, too. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. They're all in the same boat, so it's not too bad, yeah.
0: One of the... Uh, really unique function uh, uh, parts of Irish country houses that you describe in your book is the bedroom lobby. And I, I was wondering if you could speak a bit about what these bedroom lobbies were and it, what distinguished them from, say, just normal hallways in, in, in country houses elsewhere.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, that, that was something that um, I sort of wasn't expecting to um, encounter. And then somebody, I, I actually I think it was my supervisor said to me, you know, what about those spaces outside bedrooms on the first floor that have um, a light overhead? Why are they so big? What do people do in them? See if you can find out. Well, I never actually did find out what they were, but their spaces, they're spaces, these would be, they're not quite a landing, but they're very like a landing. I don't know if that's what you call that in America. But um, you know, you get up to, to the first floor and you arrive in a place where you see all the doors of perhaps the bedrooms or other rooms roundabout. about. But this space is when you get up to there, you might go through um, a couple of columns and you're into a space. And right enough, you can see all of the doorways uh, around you into different rooms, bedrooms or whatever, dressing rooms, etc. Um, but when you look up... Um, There might be another floor on top of you, but there's like a hole in that floor. Um, And so the people on that floor, they can look down into this lobby, this bedroom lobby. But right up at the very top in the roof is um, a glass dome. So that throws light right down onto that area where the bedroom lobby is, but also it gives light to the story above. Now, in a house like Castle Cool, they have... An absolutely huge bedroom lobby, and you wonder why is this space here? It's so big. What did they do with it? There must have been some purpose. Well, to be honest, I really never got to the to the very bottom of that. You could decorate it. You could put people even put heaters into it, and you're not sure if that's to heat that particular floor or if it's to um, have heat go up to the higher bedroom floor as well. Um, But I never came across in all that I read anything except for one, which was the um, laying or the lying, rather, in state of Lord Calooney, who was the um, heir to the Earl of Bellamont. And in Bellamont, in in the house, which is one of those houses I mentioned earlier, which just stands on its own, um, his son was laid out there. But they called it, when I read a, a, a contemporaneous description of the laying out of his heir, um, a young man, and um, they called it, it, it the saloon. So that's the only time I came across it. It was an ideal place for him to be laid out, I suppose, really, because there was light shining in from the top, and people could simply walk around however his body was laid out, um, or in the coffin or whatever. Uh, but... It's a space that occurs only in Irish houses. And, you know, I did my very best to try and <laughs> come to some reason why it might be there. And I was never able to do that. Visitors who went to houses, there was one visitor who went to, I think, Castle Cool And he said, yes, it's a peculiar room, something words to that extent. But he said, it's so noisy because you can hear the servants go to and fro in the morning, early morning. And that's really all so nothing but it is extraordinary and it's in the loveliest of houses i mean there's one house uh which is owned which is used by the italian embassy here at lucan house and it has uh, it has that wonderful um and that was designed by uh james wyatt and uh the english architect and uh, it it has one of those um uh, lobbies as well be very very architecturally Articulated, so you'd have columns and um, pilasters and quite a bit of architectural decoration in the space, so that you didn't actually need furniture in it at all. It was it was quite a a unique space in itself.
0: One of the pictures that uh, is in the book of the space, though, does have chairs in it, and this points to something that we sometimes uh, don't recognize when we go and visit these as. Uh, exhibits or uh, museums, which is that, oftentimes these spaces were inhabited sometimes overnight by the servants themselves. They would be out there waiting or, or resting, yeah. uh, and to be on call in essence.
1: Absolutely, um, there yes, and particularly in townhouses, you found you find that, mm-hmm. um, and also because halls, it, it, it was a, it was for defense in some cases. Um, Because you would find in the halls, the halls would be decorated sometimes with arms. Now, they might be arms used for hunting, shooting and fishing and that sort of thing. Um, But there were always guns and there were always arms um, in the vicinity of the hall. So that if somebody was breaking in, first of all, you had a servant sleeping there, usually on the floor the servant would sleep there and he would be able to alert the members of the family and the rest of the staff that something untoward was happening. Um, but there were also um, implements in the space, in the hall itself, um, to try and deal with something like that. But for the most part, the, the hall was used. It, had, it was a multi-purpose room, in fact, the hall was. And there's this wonderful woman called Mrs. Mary Delaney, who is, um, she really has, she was a visitor to Ireland, um, married to a, a, quite an old man. I don't think it was a very happy marriage, but it, it, it didn't last very long. This was it when she was living in England. Pro, she's from a noble family, but she met, while she was over here, the Dean of Down, Down being a county in the north of Ireland, and she met uh, Dean Delaney, and uh, married him much later and came to live in Ireland. But she was a fantastic letter writer and so huge chunks of information about the 18th century emanate from Mary Delaney's letters, which were all published um, to her sister and to various people, which give a huge amount of social detail, uh, which I'm sure, Mark, you've read the book and I'm sure you would see it. Mrs. Delaney pops up everywhere.
0: Yes, and, she does. <laughs> yes, yeah, so she.
1: I mean, she is just absolutely fantastic. But I was going to say something else there now, which has just gone out of my head. She was. Um, yeah, what the heck was I going to say? Sorry, what was the question you asked me?
0: Uh, I was I was talking a bit about uh, the servants and how they were outside the rooms, and you started talking about the that's, not just.
1: That's right. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, she, she would describe house parties when she'd go and visit friends. Uh, and they'd have their house parties in the... The party generally would be in the hall. Because usually it was a large space. And usually there wasn't a huge amount of furniture in it. And if there was, it could all be moved out. And it could be put into other rooms while people danced, played games. Uh, they had musicians in. They would have sing songs. They did everything, and then to eat, they would go to other rooms in the house and eat, and then come back in to dance more so she was she was a great person for talking about what people did in halls um she said also oh, she was just she, she in her own hall in um, her house in delville, uh, which is just outside dublin it 's not there anymore, but um she used to have a harper somebody playing a harp or somebody playing the fiddle, the violin, for her while she worked. Um, She just enjoyed the sound of music while she was working away. And she worked away on things like um, uh, flowers. um, What did she do? No, um, shell work. She did a lot of shell work and she decorated her house with shell work, um, as one might do for a ceiling, like plaster work in the ceiling. Um, Beautifully done. She also did um, flowers. She made flowers from coloured pieces of paper, which are extremely beautiful. I think they're in somewhere like the the Victoria and Albert Museum. And um, they are so beautiful. So she was a multi-talented woman as well as a great letter writer. But um, she uh, she was another thing about Mrs. Delaney was, which has always fascinated me, was she would walk into she would write to somebody about somebody's room, and she'd say it measures twenty feet by twenty four. And there was never, like you or I might say, I think it was probably around 20 feet by 24, but she would always give, it was that much. And after a while, I began to wonder, how in the name of God did she know it was that size? (laughs) And what did she do? And I brought this up. I was giving um, a talk um, recently, and I brought it up. I said, how did she do it? You know? And somebody said to me afterwards, by the way, I just wanted to let you know, she brought measuring tape around with her. So he, th- this guy who told me just, you know, he went off and said, somebody else was asking me something. And I didn't get back to him to say, have you got, docu- you know, documented evidence of that? Yes. So I don't really know. But even if she did have a measuring tape, wouldn't it be extremely odd for somebody to take out the measuring tape and start measuring your sitting room? Mm-hmm. You know, so I really don't know how she did it, unless it was something that people said, like, I, I want you to see my, my sitting room, or my, my drawing room, and my drawing room measures. It's actually 20 by 24 feet. I suppose, you know, they didn't have magazines. There was no way of disseminating information um, about uh, houses, except through description from one person to another. Um, you know, you didn't have photography um, and people desperately wanted to get news of any new improvements or their new house or anything like that they had made. They wanted to get that across. So I, I really, again, that's another mystery I haven't solved. I don't know whether she was just fairly sure of herself or whether somebody said to her, this is 20 by 24, um, or did she actually you know, measure it with her feet? Or whatever, but she was very, very definite about, about giving um, uh, giving descriptions and giving a- actual measurements of, of, um, of, of halls and, and not only of halls of other buildings as well other parts of the building rather and then it was the hall was also used um, uh, in I think it was in 1770, um the lord Eli. Um, entertained his tenants at Christmas time in the hall. And the hall was usually painted in what they call a buff colour, a sort of a beige colour. First of all, it was a cheap paint, but also because the hall was used all the time, and so it would have to be painted more frequently over a period of time. So this kind of buff colour was quite suitable um, for uh, a hall. But anyway, Lord Eli entertained his tenants at Christmas time. There were 120 of them. He was, he was a very sort of a flash guy. He liked spending a lot of money. And it was very nice that he entertained his uh, 120 tenants. And altogether they drank 19 gallons of rum, six gallons of whiskey, and two barrels of ale. Must
0: have been 100. some party.
1: A great party. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then there in, in Barber Villa, I mean, this is just a, some odd pieces about halls. In Barber Villa then, there was a trap door in the floor. So when people um, wanted wine or something like that, this trap door just opened and up he came, the waiter or the, the footman or whatever came with more wine from the cellar downstairs.
0: So, you mentioned that was a novelty because the uh, correspondent remarked upon it. It was not the kind of thing <laughs> you typically saw in these houses.
1: <laughs> no, no. I mean, somebody said, "Oh my God, did you look at that? I nearly die with fright." <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. So the we guests were definitely surprised with that. But that. I, now, I, I do remember reading somebody who was talking about 18th century houses and said, "You know, that uh, that was not completely unusual, but." There were. I only came across two mentions of uh, of the trapdoor in the floor. Great fun. And then the the other thing. Um, I don't know if you want me to just keep on going on about this, but the the hall, um, was a place where people waited. And there was an, an English architect who wrote a book. His name was Isaac Ware, and he wrote a book in the the eighteenth century um, about houses and how they can be organised and all of that. And he said. Um, Oh, um, you know, you you don't have to bother very much about halls. Um, certainly not halls in townhouses because they are just for the servants. And so I thought, okay, well, it's not really for the servants in the country house. Uh, he meant, I think, um, that people came with their sedan chairs. This would be in the city, uh, and to to the townhouse, and they would park their sedan chairs in the hall and the servants would look after them. So there would be a lot of sedan chairs in the halls and a lot of servants. So that's why it didn't matter there. In the country, it would, be, um, it, it would really be a bit different um, because uh, But there would have to be servants in the hall because if anybody came to the door, the servant has to be there to open the door immediately. Um, but people came to the house on business in the country house and they might have come distances and uh, they would come to talk business. It might be estate business. It might be um, the local town which would be owned by the owner of the house. Um, It could be any sort of thing. It could be hairdressers. It could be um, people selling clothes to them or fitting them for clothes. And they'd have to wait in the hall. And the furniture in the hall um, was, like the chairs in the hall were hard uh, wooden chairs, uncomfortable, really. But uh, they there was a purpose in the fact that they were uncomfortable, and that was because if you had people coming um, to like people like that, uh, tradespeople as they would call them. Um, first of all, there was a pecking order as to where they would be asked to wait. If they were important tradespeople, they might be put into um, an ante room. Or into the library to wait. If they were just ordinary tradespeople, they'd be left on the uncomfortable chairs in the hall. And uh, there was a lovely story about uh, Richard Brinsley Sheridan, who was a dramatist and a um, a dramatist and also the manager of um, theatres in in London. And in his London house, he had all of these people. He owed money to everybody, and he, they had all arrived looking for money, and um, he uh, and they were in different parts of the house. So when they heard the door upstairs closing or opening and closing, and he came out, they all, of course, came into the hall and the slam was there. And then the the, 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 guy, the person who was writing about this, said, um, "Everybody stood up when he came down, and he came down the stairs looking utterly, utterly dapper, handsome, gorgeous, full of himself, and everything like that." And he just said, good morning, gentlemen, and a kind of left her that, still continued all the way downstairs and out the hall door. And they all stood just looking after him. They were so taken with his appearance and his general demeanor that they never actually got around to saying, um, excuse me, Mr. Sheridan, but you actually owe me money. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was funny. That's one of the things about a hall.
0: One of the things that that anecdote actually brings to mind is the differentiation that you talk about in your book between the public rooms, your, 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 rooms, your, 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 uh, your formal dining areas on the one hand, and then the family spaces and how they were very distinctly separate. And I was wondering if you could speak a bit, uh, because we've been talking up until now primarily about the public areas, yeah. if you could speak a bit more about the family spaces and, and how, what differentiated them and, and how they were different from each other.
1: Um, There was always, when people go to the country house, there there was always a a sort of a, I think they call it a green baize door, behind which you would never go. So it would be indicated possibly by architecture, where you might have two um, opposite, we'd say, pilasters, um, and a door firmly closed, and you would assume that that would be the very private side of the house. So nobody attempted to go in there. Um, So you'd have the public side and then the private side. Now, the private side could be fairly ordinary because most people would spend a lot of money on the public side of the house because they wanted to show off what they had. So they'd have their pictures and they'd have all sorts of things, wonderful staircases, etc. But in the private rooms, the family spaces, um, they would have their bedrooms Um, Bedrooms, dressing rooms, perhaps a closet or two, Um, usually the library, uh, no not usually, very often the library would also be um, a private room for the family. Um, And the the library was an interesting space in that um, it evolved from uh, very few people having books because while men might read, certainly women didn't read at the very beginning of the 18th century, or not many women uh, would have read at that point, but libraries became very important. And also it was a status symbol um, for the family to have one, but very often they could be situated in the private part of the house. So um, you would have, as I say, bedrooms, dressing rooms, and perhaps a closet or two. Um, What I found interesting was looking at architectural plans, you would have a Lady Coote's room. And then you'd look around and see, well, where was Lord Coote's room? And that wasn't to be seen. And then I went, you know, to, to different architectural plans to have a look and see, you know, where where does he sleep? Um, and it was only really when I looked at a later plan, which was dated to 1822, and it was a plan of um, Ballyfin in County Leash. Um, a plan of of, of Ballyfin, where it I I eventually discovered, and I actually had kind of discovered first of all by looking at men's dressing rooms. Very often there was a smallish bed in it, and I say small like a single bed rather than a double bed, in men's dressing rooms or men's studies. And I had wondered about that: is that where they sleep? And um, so anyway, it became just ever so slightly clearer when we got to Ballyfin. And I saw on two, when I just compared the two floors, ground floor and um, the first first floor, the, the bedroom floor, Lady Coote had a suite of a boudoir, a bedroom, and a dressing room. And then directly below her was um, Sir Charles Coote's writing room and his study or I can't remember, was it called a study or something, own room, something like that it was called. And then I saw a tiny staircase which linked the two, one to the other. So I wasn't quite sure whether um, architects didn't like to sort of say, this is um, Sir Charles and Lady Coote's bedroom, or uh, they never said, this is Sir Charles Coote's bedroom by by itself, without mentioning Lady Coote, because you'd probably assume that she was going to sleep there. But it appears that a lot of drinking went on in Irish houses, and so it became almost a habit that men sometimes, rather than disturb their wives upstairs, would sleep in their studies. And... Um, and obviously, for the begetting of children or anything like that, they would be sleeping together. But I think, for the most part, they actually did sleep in the same room together. But maybe it was just being polite to the man who was building this house, and the, that the architect called it Lady Coote's room rather than Sir Charles. So that, that that was really it. But it was kind of interesting trying to work that out. And then there were. Various examples of people writing to each other. Lord Townsend, who was Lord Lieutenant, um, that's the Queen's representative, or the King's representative in Ireland at the time. Uh, He wrote to his wife saying how much he missed her in the bed. He was a guest in Castletown. He remembered the last time they were there together and she was in the bed with him. So um, I think it was really up to the couple themselves. And you also have to take into consideration that... um, Uh, A lot of these couples would not be in love when they got married and there were marriages of convenience and everything like that. So as long as they got the air and the spare, uh, they (laughs) were happy enough to just leave it at that.
0: It was one of the things I found fascinating in your book is how you describe it wasn't just the sleeping spaces that were distinct and 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 designated for, uh, uh, in, in, a lot of these plans for men and women, but also their dressing rooms, their, 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 uh, you know, privies and so forth, that they had very different, uh, setups yeah. and, and that they required separate rooms for those separate setups.
1: They did. And, you know, Mrs. Delaney, again, she, she gives us clues as to what happened there. A lot of women entertained in their dressing rooms. Um, so they would entertain. Sorry, I better rephrase that. Um, a <laughs> entertained their women friends in uh, in their dressing room. So they would do things like they might all paint together, or somebody might read a story and they all listen to it. So it is, it is sort of a, a girly place for them to be. Um, dressing rooms were sometimes very very tiny spaces, um, quite interesting. Even in Rusper, a very very small space. So sometimes ladies were asked to take off their hoops before going into the dressing. room. So they they would all fit. Um, but uh, yes, it was, they were private spaces and they were private. Uh, It was known, society knew they were private spaces and you simply did not go into a lady's dressing room or or a lady's uh, closet or her boudoir without being invited in. And that even went for, like, husbands would even say, may I come in Uh, and that's it. It was a very, very private space for a woman where she had all of the things that she was particularly interested in, where she could uh, meditate, she could read, she could write letters, she could escape from things like there was... uh, um, I think it was Lady Louisa. Or one of one of these women wrote, was writing to her brother and said, you know, oh, I've just escaped. I've got to my sanctum sanctorium, where I can now just write or do what I like just for a while to get away from everybody. It's it's um it's so nice. But um there, you know, I learned an awful lot about life in the 18th century from reading fiction of the time. And in one of those books, um, there was a young woman who was this man kept on. Coming to a door and knocking, and she said, she made it perfectly clear, like, you don't do that sort of thing, you know. I, I, it, you know, this is completely private. You know that it's my space, and I am not admitting you. And so all of that was was really made perfectly, perfectly clear to people. Um, but women also tried out um, color schemes. And they, because the rooms were small, they could actually have them decorated quite cheaply. So they would buy fabrics uh, to try out. They tried out architectural styles, um, yes, colors and, 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 uh, and soft furnishings and that in them. And they just went around and admired them in each, other's, um, in, in each other's houses. And then, you know, a few months later, they could change the whole style again. So a lot of the, the um, ad- advances in um, fabrics, in colors and all the rest of it towards the end of the 18th century colors which had been heavy and fabrics which had been heavy damasks and uh, uh silks yes but in dark colors they got lighter and lighter as time went by and also as influence of chinese furniture and chinoiserie in general um, with their lighter colors came into to vogue and arrived in places like england and in ireland and um, that colors got brighter and fabrics got lighter as time went by. Um, Also, men would have their studies uh, or their dressing rooms, but they were totally different and they would generally have, say, a a painting of their house or of their domain. Um, They would also have um, guns and all sorts of things like that, but it was very, very much a male uh, space. And while, of course, people just didn't wander in and out, it hadn't got the same sort of magical feel that um, a woman's space had, particularly if a woman had a boudoir. That was another whole story.
0: Now, the restrictions on entering a woman's uh, dressing room or boudoir, were those restrictions applied to uh, the servants who would attend to those rooms as well did they did even they have to knock and request special permission to enter or were they the exception they were allowed to come and go because they were serving a particular role to maintain the room
1: no they they couldn't they they could never just barge in at any time they always had to they always had to ask for permission to go in and uh i mean they'd have to go in obviously clean the place and and, uh, do all of that but um No, if, you know, and and I don't know, maybe the woman of the house would have said, I am not to be disturbed, and if that's the case, that's it. But she might very well bring in her own personal maid. And interestingly, just on on that particular um, uh, subject, um, they didn't like having local people as their personal servants, because, of course, anything that happened in the big house would be relayed to the entire local village. So they preferred um, landowners and owners of houses who were, of course, mostly um, Protestant, because the Catholics had lost all of their land; they, it had been taken from them um, by by settlers and by um, soldiers in the wars and all the rest of it. Who had become, you know, quite Irish at this stage. So they were mostly; uh, they would have been, the landowners would be mostly Protestant, and so they didn't want. Their personal servants to be anything but Protestant. And they certainly didn't want um, their children to be influenced by having um, their uh, governesses or their um, maids um, Catholic. These would be people who would be dealing with the children, um, and, and nursemaids and that. They, they had to be Protestant.
0: You mentioned uh, near the end of the book about uh, one uh, uh, lady writing about how she was bringing in somebody from England to serve as a servant yeah. and about how she just felt that uh, English Protestant uh, serving girls were just cleaner than than, than Irish Catholic girls.
1: Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, the servants, first of all, with regard to servants, you, there were loads of servants in Irish houses. I mean, they, people used to talk about the numbers of servants, servants without end. In, in, uh, in Irish houses and a lot of them would be simply hangers-on. You'd find them hanging around out in the gardens and nobody would say anything, or not out in the gardens, out in the like the, the, the working areas like the farmyard and places like that. And they might be given little bits of pieces of jobs to do and they might be handed a, a halfpenny or something tiny for that. And they would just be hangers-on, maybe relatives of people who are working in the house. But they'd loads and loads of servants. Um, you couldn't afford to have livery for all of these servants. Um, so, very often they just didn't bother having livery at all. But for the liveried servants, I mean, they were the, the sort of upper class of servant. And it wasn't a bad job to be a servant in a house like that. But um, they, there was it, certainly the upper servants, they liked to get them from Scotland or they liked to get them from England. Um, because they thought along the same lines as the um, as the owners of the houses did.
0: Fascinating. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, I was wondering if you could tell us what you're working on now.
1: Well, now, um, I thought I'd just have a lovely rest, but um, it
0: doesn't work out
1: like that. Um, I'm very happy to say that the the book has been getting very good reviews, and so I've been um, getting quite a, a number of speaking engagements. And um, I think I'm actually doing a, a, a speaking tour in the states uh, in the in the new year, uh, which is absolutely lovely. So that's one thing. Um, I'm also doing some work on Dublin Castle, which is where the Lord's Lieutenant, or Lieutenant, um, lived, um, you know, up to the time we became independent. And um, so I'm I'm working on. Uh, the presence chamber, which is the throne room so i 'm just trying to tease that out. it was burnt during the, uh, the it, it, in the twentieth century it was burnt by the middle of the twentieth century it was burnt um and so there were various Presence chambers in um, in in Dublin Castle. So I'm just sort of trying to to work out uh, to to do something on that. And the other thing that I'm working on, well, I haven't spent a lot of time, but um, I did when I was waiting to hear from Yale. I spent quite a bit of time working on a project to do with wine, not drinking, not uh, not wine as a drink. Um, While well, I love a drink of wine, but. Um, it it's not that it is actually the sort of uh, material culture attached to it uh, the sort of glasses that were used types of bottles um and and all of the items that were used on a table and in a house that had anything to do with wine i thought it could be it could be of, of some interest
0: it sounds like a fascinating project hmm.
1: could be i hope so anyway
0: well Thank you very much for uh, being on the show today. I really enjoyed the opportunity to speak to you about uh, Irish country houses in the 18th century. Have a good day.
1: Thank you very much indeed, Mark. Nice to talk to you. Bye-bye.